Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover Carrie, part two, prom night. Let's start the show. Carrie argues with her mother about attending the prom, but Carrie disobeys her and goes with Tommy. After some initial nervousness, Carrie eventually starts to have a good time. That comes to an end when Chris and Billy dump buckets of pig blood on Carrie, who subsequently breaks and goes on a killing spree, taking advantage of her powers. After killing a number of students, Carrie heads out into the town, where she brings more destruction. She eventually has a face-off with her mother, and then Chris and Billy, before dying in the presence of Sue Snell. She died doing what she loved, being in the presence of Sue Snell. (laughs) Fair enough. Hey, before we get into this, Jade, this is our 150th episode. Wow. That's like a major milestone, isn't it? It, it, It's definitely a milestone. It's like halfway to 300. It is. And I got to think, based on what I've heard about most podcasts, that we're probably in the top 1% of ongoing podcasts at this point. There's very few, even that I listen to, that go this long, that aren't professional, professional ones like the New York Times podcast or something. Oh, that's Uh, pretty cool. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So thank you all for listening and hope you enjoy this. Yes. Sean, what are we going to talk about in this, our 150th episode? We're going to talk about Carrie part two, prom night. Prom night. You want to talk about Carrie's powers? Seemed like we learned a little bit more about those powers. (laughs) Not only did we learn a lot more, but the people of her town learned a lot more about them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They kind of learned everything about her powers. (laughs) Yeah. So we're told both in the story itself that King writes, but in these articles about Carrie that she has telekinesis. And I've always mm. taken ke- telekinesis to mean that she can move things with her mind, right? That, yeah. That, that, I, that's, the, that. That, that's the telekinetic power that people have. You can move things with your mind. But we get a lot more in this section is not only is she able to move things with her mind, mostly when we see this early on. She's moving things that she sees. So she's in her room and she's moving things around. And by this time, she's getting into the bowels of the school and understanding where the pipes are so she can turn things and make them the water flow the way she wants. And uh, she can also set things on fire by causing explosions. And then she can also link her mind with other people so that they can tell what she's thinking or at least feel the emotions that she has, um, as well as sort of have like a mental map of where she is and where she needs to go. Like her powers really sort of blow up, pun intended here. Yeah. The mental psychic connection angle of this was the one that surprised me the most. Mm. It's fun. It's also a handy thing for King to include here because it lets it lets these other characters know Carrie's mind when there isn't a clean way for him to present it to us. Yes. Aside from, you know, I guess writing necessity. Uh, it's it's kind of cool that not only did the town suffer the the destruction that she caused, but they also got to, in a way, walk in her shoes because she connected them to her mind. So these few survivors of the destruction are also maybe in some ways the most sympathetic 
I don't know if they really came across as sympathetic, but they they all seem to have a common thread to their testimony that I just knew it was her and I knew that she was doing it and I kind of understood why. Yeah. It also plays into King's writing style. I was not expecting. We've now read all of King's early books. I think we're probably have done the first five or six on the show now. And he doesn't have in the dead zone and the shining as much of the parentheses, short chapters, short sentences, sentences that get cut off like he does in his mid-80s work. I sort of think it and Firestarter are just filled with that type of stuff. Tommyknockers Mm. is definitely that. But this book has a lot of it too that I was sort of surprised to see because I don't associate that with his early novels. But it works really well here, right? Because Carrie's mind is moving so fast and she's got all of these emotions that she's feeling. And then when she's projecting her mind out, unintentionally, I think, like I don't think she's purposely trying to do that. It's just her powers are so advanced at this point that she they've just expanded to encompass this whole town. That Sue Snell can be thinking something and in the midst of thinking that, all of a sudden she gets this like download of Carrie's thoughts that are all over the map, talking about her mother and religion and the powers and the blood and all this. And it's sort of all mixed together. And King's writing style of these short declarative sentences that interrupt each other and don't have punctuation and are a bunch of ideas. It just feels right here. I agree. And King's use of these parentheticals at first kept throwing me. I was getting knocked out of the story every time I saw one because is this just sloppy? Is he is he just too new to the writing scene and and what's going on here? But as I got used to it, I started to just treat it like another writing convention, the way that I would, uh, you know, quotes mm. or a question mark. It's just part of King's punctuation. And once I accepted it for that, every other time I saw it, it, it actually enhanced my experience because it was doing the, the work that you just described. Yeah. You'd need to come up with a way to present that interruption, interruption, interruption. And how else but put it in a parenthetical? It's just that it's there a lot. Yeah. And you have to get used to the frequency. But it also throws you off kilter, which I think it's supposed to. Like, could you imagine Mm -hmm. if you were within 500 feet of carry and all of a sudden you got this mind blast of all these emotions and thoughts and you didn't even know what they all meant? I know you and I were like sometimes reading phrases and we're like, what does this mean? And how does this relate? And the first part of this thought does not relate to the third part because there's this Mm -hmm. piece in the middle. And just sort of trying to distinguish that. And if you're reading fast, you can't. But that's sort of how Sue Snell, for instance, she doesn't know all the backstory. She's trying to pick up these pieces and she gets feelings of it. And that's why she can sort of explain it, but not explain what's happening. So um, it was interesting. It does make for a much more of a fireworks than you might expect at first. And not quite what I remembered. It's been a while since I've read this book. And I had sort of assumed that she just used her telekinesis to throw people up against the wall and yeah, and and stop their heart like she does with her mother. But there's this whole like, oh, I'm going to electrocute some people and flood people and set things on fire and explode stuff. It makes for a much more um, dynamic situation. Sean, another interesting thing that we learn at the end of this section of the book is that there's kind of like this hypothetical of if there's somebody like Carrie in the world, we don't know how far her powers would actually extend. And what do you do Hmm. with these people? Do you just round them up and shoot them in the head? Which is the language that (laughs) the book uses. And 
And then do you develop a test to check if somebody is like Carrie with these powers at birth or when they enter first grade? And then if you find that they do have these powers, do you take that kid and shoot the kid in the head? It's kind of dark, but uh, kind the alternative is potentially world ending, right? Yes. So it, it's very dark. I mean, like this is literally genocide, right? Picking people up because of their genetic material and killing them. Like, I think if, if you were to do that, that would literally be genocide. And I don't think King is necessarily saying that this is what we do, but it becomes this thought experiment for him, which is a mm -hmm. thought experiment he has in this first book. And he continues, right? 112263 is what do you do if you know somebody's going to kill somebody? Can you go back in time and stop it? Uh, the Institute is about kids with powers and how do you use them? Firestarters directly about this, right? The shop wants to take. Charlie and use her because her powers are going to expand and then they could theoretically use her as a weapon. And then I think the dead zone is the opposite of that, right? So in this book, they're worried that Carrie has these powers and so maybe we should get rid of them. And in the dead zone, Johnny knows that Stilson is going to have power and so he wants to kill him ahead of time. So all these thoughts are things that King thinks about and is wrestling with, and this one he just sort of leaves it, right? Like, what could we do? And um, much like with Frank Dodd in the dead zone, it's cleaned up nicely because Carrie dies before we actually have to worry about it. And it's just sort of like, well, there might be others out there and maybe we'll be able to eventually do it. But it does pose an ethical dilemma for people to think about. Yeah. You know, we, we've talked about in, in other books, like people coming to the, the right decision or right conclusion for all the wrong reasons. Uh, we learned that Carrie's mom wanted to kill her as soon as she was born. And then she almost killed her again, just a, like a year later. And, a, and then again, like when she was a toddler and that's when she brought the stones and here she is waiting for her at the end of prom night to finally do that deed. It's for all the wrong reasons. It still seems like she's in perfect alignment with this hypothetical government policy where the only thing you can do is to end Carrie because she is too powerful to be allowed to continue to live. Or you don't raise her in such a crazy environment, right? Like oh, that, yeah, yeah. that becomes maybe, the other that becomes the other argument is like, is this all due to is it a nurture or nature argument here that we mm -hmm. have, right? What what causes somebody to go evil? Is right. it their inheritance? If she were raised by Ma and Pa Kent, then maybe Carrie would have been a boon to society. She could walk all around and, you know, lift heavy things. She could go from construction site to construction site and build skyscrapers, right? Exactly. That's the only thing I could think of. The, only, the only purpose to do with that, telekinesis. That's benevolent. Is just build, build buildings. <laughs> I just left you speechless with that, didn't I? <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting because it is it it does become this X Men analog very directly, right? The X Men powers happen around puberty, and Professor Xavier takes these kids under his wing and then teaches them how to harness their powers for good and become superheroes and defend the world. And I think Carrie just needed a Professor X to help her out, yeah, and not be shot because <laughs> otherwise you have a bunch of senators who want to like have sentinels come around and. Mm -hmm. Take care of people like Carrie ahead of time. Would the Sentinels look like Margaret White and just <laughs> yell, they're all going to laugh <laughs> at you over and over again, <laughs> instead of that weird scream they do? That, yeah. It was fun coming to this book again, because I didn't remember a lot of these details. And to see this theme that 
King has played with in so many different novels was sort of exciting for me to see that here it was in his first published book. And it might not have been as well formed. And he sort of leaves it, like I said, with Carrie dying and just these commissions trying to get to the to the kernel of truth. And even in those commission papers and the articles, there's still disagreement, right? About oh, is there is this really such a power? Maybe Carrie wasn't the only one involved. Maybe other people were involved. We'll never know the true story, or will we? But King's like, I'm gonna milk this for all it's worth in some of my other books as well, or 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 look at it from different angles, which I thought was good. Yeah, yeah. Should we talk about some of the characters that we've gotten to know so well in this book? Yes. I have uh, some thoughts. I don't know if you'll agree with them. Um, I think that we've, we've found that King has been extraordinarily good at developing even the most uh, like transient, minor, brief characters to just give them just enough dimensionality to make us care about that character, even if they're on the page for like two minutes, you know, no big deal, but he makes them a big deal. And I think like a shining example of this is in The Stand. That was a weird reference with The Shining there. <laughs> a standing example is in The Shining. <laughs> um, there was that whole montage of all of the characters who survived the plague, but then died from some other cause, you mm -hmm. know, like the guy who fell down a hole. We spent enough time with them and we got enough detail about them that it made sense to learn about them. We weren't just bored, like skip, skip, skip. This, you know, it's not like the songs in the Tolkien stories, you know, like, <laughs> skip those. That probably just offended half of our listeners. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> but King, King imbues these tiny characters with life. And I think he's done that again here. There are all of these townspeople, mostly the parents of the prom goers, who come running out of the, their homes to see what the hubbub is all about. They're in their nightgowns and their, their bunny slippers, and many of them die horrible deaths, but we learn just enough about them to understand who they are, what their motivations are, and it's enough for us to care. So I think he's doing a splendid job here in his very first book. And I think that Billy is the shining example of this. I think Billy is a triumph of a character. He is deeply unlikable and even evil. He kills dogs for fun. And, you know, there's the save the cat versus kill the dog. King has him kill dogs for fun all the time. So we know, bad dude. But then he's really smart in this almost feral way. And given that one of the themes of the book is like the clash between the popular and unpopular people, or even the upper and lower economic classes, Billy is almost sympathetic mm. because of his disdain of the you know, fancy girls he dates and then discards. And also because of his dreams of escaping the drudgery of his hometown, right? He's relatable in some of those ways. Meanwhile, he's still this awful person. So I think King has really succeeded in making a character like Billy somebody who I almost want to like make it out of the story because of how complex and three-dimensional and detailed he is. Mm. What are your thoughts? I thought it was interesting that you brought this up because when I was doing my initial thoughts on this section of the book and what we were going to talk about, I came down on the side that this is a first book in which it doesn't seem like the author is giving me 
very rounded characters. So I was surprised when you thought that there were, because I I didn't get that sense at all. The minor characters, especially like the ones you're mentioning, I think the only thing that sticks out for me is that the one woman was wearing slippers and a robe. Mm. I can't think of characterization or like, oh, I'm interested to see what happens with this person for the two pages they're going to be on. Um, we get introduced by name to a lot of high schoolers as Carrie and Tommy walk in and sort of in one ear and out the other for me. And even the mainish characters, I don't think are very well rounded. And they seem to be there more to service the story. Whereas I believe in other King books, the story revolves around the characters. Mm. And the story is a natural outgrowth of what the characters are like. I'll give you an example. Like I think Tommy is just sort of a piece that Sue moves to ask out Carrie so that he can take her to the prom, but then he does. We get a little bit of a sense that maybe he likes and appreciates Carrie, but then he's killed and it doesn't matter. Um, Sue has this crisis of conscience, but I almost wonder if a lot of that is so she doesn't have to go to the prom and then she avoids being killed. So then that way King has somebody who can tell the story afterward and have a survivor to tell what happened to Carrie. And the other characters. Carrie's mom, maybe a little bit dimensional, but sort of really, really evil. And I don't feel like even at the end when we're trying to get maybe a little bit of sympathy by seeing like, oh, well, this is how her husband treated her. It's too little too late. I don't think she's a a believable character with the way she's written. Um, Carrie, I think a little bit better, but in my mind, she sort of breaks pretty quick and is sort of bad from the get-go. Billy and Chris seem like really Chris especially seems like the rich mean girl that we've seen in lots of things. And as you said, Billy seems pure evil. It could use a little bit of softening to make him seem less of a caricature of a pure evil type of character. So for my thought, I didn't see that the the characters were well-rounded in this. I, I do think that that was a miss. I think we're probably lucky because later King might have filled out these characters, but then this story would have been 500 or 600 or 700 pages as he gave them all full characterizations. And I don't think that that would have served the story either, because I do think that this probably works better as a as a novella or short story even, and maybe leaving some of this characterization out. Uh, I think you make a lot of good points, but I would counter some of them with the fact that Buddy Rupperton and Christine is almost identical to Billy in this, in a lot of ways. But I think Billy's a more complex version. Mm. I think Buddy Rupperton's one note and that's in a later novel and it's it's when king's had many more years to practice his craft and he writes a, a less complex version of the bully driving a hot rod mm-hmm. with a gang of no nothing tough guys um i agree with you on the the easy out from a writer's perspective that for sue snell like oh we need somebody to be the witness and to be around to tell the story I, i'm totally on board with that but we spend a lot of time in her mind getting her perspective on things. And yeah, her motivations are flawed. And yeah, we don't really sympathize with her because of that. But that is a complexity that gives us something to sink our teeth into. I'll just stop there. But I think that I can make a counterpoint to most of the characters to say, I think there's a little bit more meat on the bone than you're giving them credit for. Perhaps. I, I will call out a couple quotes that sort of support my point, even though I don't think they were meant to. And that is when Sue is talking before the commission 
She says that she's sorry for Carrie. They've forgotten her, you know. They've made her into some kind of symbol and forgotten that she was a human being. As real as you reading this with hopes and dreams and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know what? I don't know that. I think she is just sort of a symbol. She's a symbol of a fanatic mother who has warped the daughter, who has powers and what happens when she is bullied and taken too far. And really, she is sort of a symbol of that and not a full human being. And then elsewhere, when Carrie is at the prom, Carrie says that in the soft, revolving gloom, they were wraiths without substance. She did not really want to see them as her classmates. She wanted them to be beautiful strangers. And that's sort of how I felt too, that they were all just sort of strangers on the page to me. They were wraiths. They weren't full human beings. And that's why when Carrie starts killing them, the spectacle is what intrigues me. It's not, oh, I feel sorry for this guy or that guy. I think in the stand when those minor characters felt it, you sort of felt like the horror of, wow, the way that this plague impacted people, whether they died from Captain Trips or from the things that happened after Captain Trips, was a real tragedy. Whereas here, I was like, ooh, look, things blowing up. Cool. Mm. Okay. Okay. And I'll even add some wood to the bonfire there for you (laughs) in that, in my opinion, one of the biggest flaws of Carrie's character development is that King spends a little bit too much time having his cake and eating it too with her. One of the ways that Carrie works as a character is because she has been so sheltered Mm. and governed by her mother in in all these abuses that she doesn't know anything. She has a deep ignorance and it's not her fault, but it's true nonetheless. Yeah. Even to the point of not knowing that she could have could have her, her first period or what it means, that is just amazing that that could be the case. But then when it's time to rip the town apart and kill everybody, Carrie suddenly intuits, I guess, how plumbing works and how electricity <laughs> works. How does she know that if she pulls these power lines down to the ground that they will kill people? Does she even understand that? Like, I think most people walking down the street don't know that much about power lines that they would know, like, I could kill somebody if I knocked that line down and it landed on their head. Or let me flood the place first and have water everywhere and then do it. Yeah. Yeah. Electricity. Yeah. It's like she's simultaneously ignorant of, of everything and knows more than she could possibly know. That's that's just bad character design, I think. Yeah, I think that. I, I I think I want to emphasize that point. I do think that the characters are are servicing the story rather than vice versa. And I think yeah. I think in a good book, and I think King has said this too, right? Rather than knowing like, oh, the plot's going to be A, B, C, and D, it's more of, hey, I'm going to create this character and see where this character leads me. And I don't know where that's going to be because this character is a full and rich person that is going to make decisions and I'm going to see where they end up. And I think- what you just said about Carrie is that way. Or maybe it's just that the main school system is really bad at sex ed, but really good at physics. Could be, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe she took a lot of shop classes. We don't know. Yeah, and just no sex ed, which is really a problem in American school systems. Yeah. Yeah, I actually don't have that hard of a time believing that somebody might not know about the reproductive process and, and the organs that, that go with it. Yeah. Um, even to the the age like uh, being a senior in high school or a yeah, junior in, in high school in the seventies, yeah. yeah, definitely in twenty twenty three that still happens. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, we've gone through another part of Carrie. Are there any Dark Tower thinnies? 
I found a couple thinnies. Ooh, I didn't, so I'm I'm glad to hear yours. All right. Well, I guess I'll start. I'll start with this one because I think it's a little questionable, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you be the judge. There's a line that says, plates began to explode in the cupboards like clay pigeons. This is when, I believe, when Carrie is uh, fighting the final battle with her mother. And I thought, plates exploding, hey? Like four special plates? Like four special blue plates? I think if they were blue, if they had indicated that these were somehow fine pieces of dinnerware that the white family treasured, I would buy it a little bit more. But when it's just plates, like everybody's got plates in their house. So yeah, I think you're right on the edge of a thinny, but maybe not quite there. Hopefully your next one is a little bit stronger. All right. All right. Fine. <laughs> all right. So how about this one? The line that caught my eye was, but the car, the car fed him power and glory from its own mystic lines of force. It made him someone to be reckoned with, someone with mana. And this is talking about Billy and the car he drives and how he just feels like he's unstoppable when he's behind the wheel. But anyway, it caught my eye because it talks about mystic lines of force Mm -hmm. that makes the person following those lines more powerful. Could that be like the beams and that all things serve them, including Billy? Yes. And I also think even just the idea of cars in King's World as these special objects that are imbued with additional power Mm. that comes from someplace not quite natural or not necessarily of this world. So we've got- The Takuro spirit? Yeah, like we- Exactly. That was that wasn't going to be one of my examples, but now that you mentioned it, but like Christine, right? Christine has power from somewhere. Mm-hmm. From a Buick 8 is literally a car that leads people into another world. There is the cars that the low men drive. All of these cars have these powers that come from, who knows, the dark tower, the beam, the thinny. So I, I, I like this a lot. I think that that is a good piece. And I mean, I don't know how original that is in King- I think that part of it is original for King, but like the idea is in America, especially cars as these powerful things that represent somebody's personality, whether that be good or bad, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I think he's calling on that, but imbuing it with this special mystic flavor makes it what King's special. And again, I think it becomes a Dark Tower thinny. So nice catch. All right. Fantastic. How about any yucking it ups? Well, I had one, and this hints at a couple of things we've talked about. One is that when one of the uh, people is recollecting what happened the night of the prom and the destruction, they say they stepped over two live wires and went around a body that wasn't much more than a puddle. I, I, I had to look to see where I was going. There was a wedding ring on the body's hand, but it was all black, all black, and. Yeah, sure. The the burnt dark hand with the wedding ring is a nice little detail. But the idea that the whole body wasn't much more of a puddle, we talked about how Carrie's able to use these electrical wires to to cause her destruction. But then also, this reminded me a little bit of the X-Men when, <laughs> when the senator turns into a big blob of flesh. So that sort of grossed me out a little bit. And therefore, it's in yucking it up. That was pretty much the only thing that I came across that I would have counted as a yucking it up, so I don't have any more to add. Yeah, this is pretty straightforward. Shit blowing up, people getting stabbed. Wanton destruction. Yeah. Dogs and cats living together. Your your everyday sort of stuff, yeah. 
All right. Well, we want to thank our patrons again for supporting the show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. You probably have listened to our Dead Zone, the movie podcast recently, if you're a patron. And coming up, as soon as we finish Carrie, Carrie the movie, the original, not one of the many sequels. The original was Sissy Spacek. Directed by Brian De Palma. You can find out more by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. I can't wait to cover that movie. And I bet our listeners and our patrons can't wait to hear us talk about it. It's true. I, I mean, $1.19 a month, that's got to be one of the best deals around to listen to us talk about movies and other Stephen King stuff. That's right. I, I won't argue with you on that. I mean, I guess the best deal I'm around- I'm not is- arguing with that. I'm not arguing with yeah. you, Sean. If I, I were I, arguing with you about that, I would be wrong. You, you would be wrong. I guess the best deal, though, is actually this podcast that you're getting for free. I mean, help two guys out. <laughs> Throw us a buck or two. <laughs> One for each guy. <laughs> All right. I think it's time for some fun stuff. Why don't you kick us off, Sean? Right. So we just finished talking about Billy's car. I think that this is some foreshadowing of Christine. Listen to how Billy's car is described. Old, dark, somehow sinister. The windshield was milky around the edges, as if a cataract was beginning to form. The seats were loose and unanchored. I think all Billy has to do is drive it backwards for a while, and he'll be in much better shape. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I also thought it was interesting that his girlfriend is Chris Harginson. And I don't know why it didn't occur to me until it gets spelled out towards the end of the book, but her name is Christine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you go. So there it's you like go. all the Susans in, in uh, <laughs> yeah, King's books. Exactly. They're all, they've got to start counting Christines. Susans are good. Christines are bad. That's it. That's the formula. We just unlocked Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah. I think the most sinister part of the uh, description of Billy's car is that the seats were loose and unanchored. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough that no one's wearing a seatbelt. There's no airbags or any crash protection, but his seats aren't even bolted oh. down properly. Well, he also has like big boxes of metal boxes of tools also mm-hmm. just sort of sitting on the floor of the uh, car, not, not to mention the tin buckets of blood in the back. Oh, yeah. I mean, who doesn't drive around with tin buckets of blood? I sort of imagine Billy is like my grandfather. So my grandfather, I remember in the 70s, hated that cars started to get built with a little sensor for when you didn't have your seatbelt on and it would beep, beep, beep. Mm -hmm. And he thought that was annoying. I mean, I would put on my seatbelt, but my grandfather instead went into his machine shop and crafted little pieces of plastic or metal that he would insert into the seatbelt instead of the actual seatbelt. So that so that the sensor wouldn't go off and he could drive around sans seatbelt, but sans uh, annoying alarm as well. So that seems like something Billy would do. For sure. Um, I thought King was really having fun with uh, some of his pseudo journalistic entries and, and medical uh, articles. And there's this one title that he crafts called Black Prom. The White Commission report. <laughs> like, ah, black and white, eh? <laughs> Maybe he was eating a certain type of cookie, and that inspired this title. I, I would definitely pick that one up. I mean, that's much better than like the subcommittee on appropriations look at military spending in fiscal year 2022. Mm-hmm. They know how to get to it. Black prom, the White Commission report. 
Yeah. It's, it's, it's like something that you'd see on TNT on Saturday mornings. It's like, Black Prompt, the White Commission Report. CNN's got laser beams and a special like musical theme that goes along with it. Da, 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 Black Prom. Yeah, and cheesy 3D CGI. What else you got? So this might be a stretch, but when I was reading this, there's at least two gas stations that get blown up during Carrie's wanderings around town. And I was like, wow, two gas stations get blown up. That's a pretty big deal. And my mind was going to when when do other gas stations get blown up in popular culture? My mind immediately went to Rambo, First Blood. And then I made the connection that others have made about Stephen King liking First Blood. He has said that the book by David Morrell is a book that he very much admires. And when he was teaching a college class in the late 70s, so after Carrie was written, he actually taught the book First Blood at uh, one of the University of Maine classes. And the book First Blood was written in 1972. It was published in 1972. So it came out right around the time that King was writing this. I don't know when King read First Blood for the first time. I don't know if it was, in fact, an influence on Carrie, but I do know that King is aware of the book and King likes the book. I've not read the book, but I've seen the movie a number of times. And there's a lot of connections, I think, that could be made between First Blood and Carrie. Your main character is somebody who has been traumatized by past events, Rambo, Vietnam, Carrie, her relationship with their mother. Um, they're not quite understood by the small town that they're in, and they are harassed by the people within that. They're bullied, in fact. Rambo is bullied by the sheriff or the, deputy, the chief of police, and Carrie's obviously bullied by a number Good of other- old Brian Dennehy. Yeah, and, and Carrie's- uh, Bullied by, by a number of everybody. <laughs> yeah, by everyone, but but a few people. When they are pushed too far, they sort of break and go on a mass killing spree throughout the town, basically destroying the entire town. And then, in the book, at least of First Blood and Carrie, the main character dies, surrounded Spoilers. by yeah, surrounded by one person who sort of understands them. So Troutman in Rambo and Sue Snell in Carrie. And I wonder, like, is Carrie uh, John Rambo, basically? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> is, in fact, Carrie Stephen King riffing on the horrors of Vietnam? I don't know. But I did a little bit of searching. I didn't find anything. I obviously didn't go into academic journals to see what was going on with that. I couldn't find a lot. A big problem with my searches is that one of the Carrie sequels, there's a bunch of articles that say, Carrie, first blood. and so. I encourage somebody to do more looking and see if King has ever said anywhere that First Blood was an influence on Carrie. If not, like I said, they're sort of contemporaneous, so there's a possibility there. I would say the chances are better than average that King read First Blood at least once before starting or fin at least finishing yeah. Carrie. Uh, King is a voracious reader and would very likely have come across that book. And I'm not saying that he stole like the plot or anything. I'm just saying like there's a lot of connections there. Obviously, two totally different works, right? But and and totally different directions. But I think somebody could have a lot of fun, sort of mapping those out. And there's your dissertation or your master's thesis. Go for it, some some brave listener. Yeah, I'd love to read that dissertation, especially if it's titled "Black Prom: The White Commission <laughs> Report." <laughs> ah, yes. 
my final fun stuff is just a request to pour one out for the good old cuckoo bird because just before everything else gets just crushed into the ground and burnt to a crisp the cuckoo clock that is a perennial character in this book falls to the ground and the mechanical bird gave a small strangled squawk and was still yeah you might argue that the uh Cuckoo Bird was a more rounded character than some of the other ones in this book because it appears a lot. Oh, I take. <laughs> it has an arc, a full arc. You mean like as it pops in yeah. and out of, yeah, yeah. of the clock? Well, yeah, that, that arc On the too. hour? It has an actual physical arc as well as a narrative arc, yes. Mm. Oh, that's a good one. All right. Well, I think it's time for Other Worlds Than These. Shall I start? Go for it. All right. I am currently reading a book called Red Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson. Red Mars is the first in a trilogy of books, commonly referred to as the Mars Trilogy. And these are basically the story of scientific explorers who first settle and then over many, many years transform the planet of Mars. I'm very close to the beginning of the first book in this trilogy, so that's about all I could really share, even if I wanted to say more, but that's as far as I'll, I'll go, except to say that I'm enjoying it, and if anybody else likes hard science fiction, I encourage you to pick these up. I, in fact, read this trilogy, and I liked it a lot. Like you, I'm not going to be able to give many details because I was trying to figure out when I read this, and I looked it up, and it was over 20 years ago. I think I read it in 2001. So all three books. And I remember enjoying them a great deal. I can remember a few pieces of it, but not a lot. As you mentioned, they're hard science fiction, meaning there's a lot of scientific detail in there. And it's good. I liked it. Yeah. You recommended these books to me when I was going on and on about how great The Expanse was. Mm. And you said, well, you know, it sounds like you would like these books and you should check them out. And now I finally have gotten around to starting them and and I, I am enjoying them. Good. It's funny because a lot of these types of sci-fi stories where like Blade Runner or Alien or something, it's like, we're going to set this way in the future. So it'll seem super futuristic in 1970, whenever, when <laughs> we're making this movie. Well, these books were written in, the first one was in 1992 and it's set in 2026. Uh -huh. So just three years from now, we're going to Mars, Sean, we're going to Mars. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, you read them 20 years ago, so it didn't feel so silly. <laughs> no, it didn't. No, it didn't. Well, I wanted to talk for my other worlds in these about my 2023 book project. Longtime listeners will remember that in 2021, I read all of the Travis McGee novels, which I also highly recommend. In 2022, in honor of Kurt Vonnegut's centennial of his birth, I read all of his books. For 2023, I'm reading books from 1973, so 50 years ago, for no real reason, not any reason at all why I chose 50 years ago. Like, it's not related to anything other than I just wanted to read books from 1973. I'm not an old man, Jay. I'm not an old man. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I'm, I've decided to read books from 1973, not exclusively. I'm reading other books as well, but like, uh, I'm going to try to read some of the things that were on the New York bestsellers list. I think there's like six or seven books that top the list. So I'm going to read those. Some books that were critically acclaimed, maybe some Nobel Prize winners, that sort of thing. So far, I've gone through Jonathan Livingston Seagull, 
The Odessophile, uh, Breakfast of Champions, I'm probably not going to reread since I just read it last year. That's the Kurt Vonnegut book. I am currently on The Honorary Council by Graham Greene, who did a number of espionage-type books. And I'm going to try to tackle Gravity's Rainbow uh, by Thomas Sean, Pynchon. everybody says they're going to read Gravity's Rainbow, but nobody ever reads Gravity's well, Rainbow. you know what? I've started to find out why, because I got about 50 pages into it, and I'm like, wow, this is, uh, this is a, a, a hard, dense read. And um, then it had to go back to the library. But I'm going to try to finish it before the end of the year. So if anyone else has any other books from 1973 that you recommend, let me know. I will say The Princess Bride's on the list. I have not read The Princess mm. Bride for probably 30 years, and I wouldn't mind giving that another shot. That is a fantastic book. Yes. So, um, yeah, 1973 books. For no reason in particular. Yeah. No big milestone birthdays that are one third of the number of episodes that we've produced so far. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, that's going to be it for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. Jay, by the way, I'm wearing our merch today. Oh, are you? What do you think? That's pretty great. I bet you were the best dressed and most popular dude in your hometown. I, I certainly was. And I would love for our listeners to get a fine Two Guys to the Dark Tower shirt like I have. And so go to store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. And since this is an audio medium, I'll describe the shirt for those of you who don't know what it looks like. It has the words, all things serve the beam in the shape of a turtle. How about that? And on the back, it says, two guys to the Dark Tower came. It's wonderful. You will look sharp. You will increase your popularity tenfold. And you'll make like, I don't know, 50 new friends just walking down the street. Check it out. And while you're doing that, go rate us on Apple Podcasts. And as we mentioned earlier, support the show by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we conclude Carrie, covering part three, Wreckage, as well as our final thoughts on the book. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. The White Commission Report.